Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And this is Antiques Freaks, joined today by Karen Law, a personal property appraiser specializing in silver, with articles published in Silver Magazine, and a member of the UK Silver Society. Hello, Carolyn. Hello. This is a real pleasure. Oh, this is delightful. It is wonderful to have you on. So, Carolyn, we heard that you could perhaps tell us about silver hallmarks, which have been a perpetual mystery to us throughout our antiques careers. Yeah, I think I was, I think there is at least one episode where I call them like hieroglyphics and that I'll never understand them. So (laughs) I'm really excited to learn anything. Which is an interesting choice because we do understand hieroglyphics. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Well, I don't, I don't think this qualifies as hieroglyphics. But I think that the place to start in understanding marks on silver should be England, 18th century England in particular, because that's really the high noon of the domestic silver day. And if you can interpret the marks on English silver, you'll be able to use reference books and other uh, resources to branch out into other more less quantified marks on silver. The reason that silver is marked at all is that silver has always been a controlled substance. Oh. Because it was the money. You know, it was the money in most places. So there has always been not only a need, but an expectation that silver would be somehow controlled in order to maintain the value of currency. So with that in mind, the marks on silver, they weren't ever intended to be used by consumers. They were really an industry regulation system so that the state could tax it correctly. They could control the quality of the silver in the item so that it could be melted down and turned into cash. So for most of silver's history, silver was literally money. So consumers weren't so interested in it. It was the guild, it was the regulation of silversmiths who were responsible for handling precious metal that was essentially the currency, which meant that they were really the first bankers. And the reason England is good for this is that they were highly regulated from medieval times. As early as the 13th century, the crown, I think, I don't off the top of my head remember which king it was. Say an Edward Four or something. One of them Edwards. <laughs> one of the Edwards. <laughs> one of the, one of the oldies. This is medieval England mandated that a leopard's head be stamped on all domestic articles of silver. Badass. Good choice. Yeah, and that would signify that it had that it was of the coinage value, and then that meant that you could take your goblet in, melt it down in it would have that value of coin. So you're holding your money in your sideboard of plate. So it was the leopard's head and the leopard wore a little crown. And now on more contemporary English silver, the leopard looks kind of like a kitty cat. You know, it's just sort of the little kitty cat face. Yeah. So they still use that stamp. Oh, absolutely. The Worshipful Company of Goldsmiths is active to this very day. Oh, wow. This is how contemporary silver objects are still by law required to be stamped. So we start with the sterling standard of the little leopard's face. Well, about 60 years into that system, they decided that the maker 
of the piece had to be identified so that they could find people who were doing bad things with their silver, either selling silver that was not of sterling standard or what have you. So they added the requirement that the maker had to stamp each article with a special mark. And in the early times, it would have been a rebus of their name or a symbol of, you know, the sun or teapot or some symbolic maker's mark. So now there were two marks required on English silver, and that goes into the 14th century. Then in 1327, the goldsmith's company was the guild was chartered. And then they required some way of identifying whose authority assayed that article. So in 1327, the silversmiths had to bring their work to an assay office, have it tested for sterling standard, which is 92.5% pure silver. And then they would mark it with the warden's stamp that would indicate who was responsible for overseeing the assay office. And now we call that the date letter. So now there's three marks <laughs> on English silver. <laughs> the maker's mark would be a symbol, and then the assay office would be a letter. They used a system of 20 letters, so they excluded some letters of the alphabet. So the cycle runs for 20 years. I don't know why they didn't just place the assay warden's name on it, but they used this system of lettering that goes year by year, changes from May to May. So it's not a natural year. Yeah, here we go. Hieroglyphics. They make so many unusual choices. They did make unusual choices. So the date letter indicates the year so you can identify who the assay warden was that year because they elected a new warden in May every year. Go figure. The only way to know this is to look at a book or online. It's a reference problem. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's so many references deep. Right. However, I collect 18th century silver of a particular type. And so now I know what my date letters of interest are. And so now in a shop, I can look and I can see, oh, that's my date letter. Oh, I didn't mention, in addition to the letter, the letter's font changed. So there'll be Gothic and Lombardic and Italic, and that regulates the years. So that the letter E from one year to the next will change in its font style. And, oh, I forgot to mention. <laughs> so many variables. <laughs> the date letter would then also have a particular kind of cartouche around it. So if your letter E is in Gothic and in a shield-shaped cartouche, that would indicate, using your table of date letters, what year that item was hallmarked. I am loving the layer upon layer of secret symbols here. Yeah. It's funny, you, you start this conversation with talking about the mysteries of these marks and the layers upon layers of secrets because the medieval guilds spoke of their work as mysteries. Oh. Uh... So that the apprentices in the worshipful company of goldsmiths over the last 700 years, maybe, and it's still going on today, they would learn the mystery of their trade. So that it was a kind of industry protection against sabotage and people stealing their secrets. They wanted to make sure that the silver industry was not out there among the riffraff, that it was highly controlled. So it is a mystery. 
And I think that some of the arcanity of these marks is intended to keep the public from knowing very much. So it was in the end of the 19th century, in the 1890s, with the rise of all this Victorian antiquarianism, that these marks ever came to the general public's interest. And I know that uh, y'all really enjoy the Victorian whimsy. <laughs> yeah. um, Very much. <laughs> so we've got three marks on the silver now. And then in the middle of the 16th century, the fourth mark came to be stamped. And it's called the Lion Passant. And that means the walking lion. So here is a little lion, and it's got its paw raised up like it's walking. It's really adorable. And it's walking to the left. And that is the early modern, starting in about 15, I don't know, off the top of my head, 1540s, something like that. And now that walking lion symbol is the standard of sterling. So if you see a left-facing lion with its little paw up, that indicates sterling silver. And so that replaced the leopard's face as the sterling standard, and the leopard's face became the mark for the London assay office. And there were other assay offices around England throughout early modern English times, but now there's only three, I believe. So we've got now the leopard's head for London, we have the maker's mark, we have the date letter, and we have the sterling standard, the lion passant. After 1784, England had a lot of debt uh, because they tried to fight a war. You might have heard of that war. Um, they lost that war in 1783. Oh, no way. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> so they lost a little war in 1783, and they had a massive amount of debt so they taxed silver at 16p per troy ounce. And that required another mark from 1784 onward that indicated that the tax had been paid. And that tax would have been paid by the silversmith at the time of assay. So they would go in with their spoons and they would all be tested for standard sterling quality. All these stamps would be attached and then they would pay, let's say your, your spoon weighed two troy ounces, they, you would have to pay 12 pence tax. And then they would stamp it with the head, not the literal head, but the bust figure of the monarch. And that would have been, of course, a George, pick a George. It'd be George III <laughs> in 1784, and then George IV later, et cetera, et cetera. You find that in really modern pieces, too, for Jubilee years, so that Queen Elizabeth II, she had several sort of anniversary years, and her bust would be stamped on special pieces of silver. The tax was discontinued in 1890. So from 1784 to 1890, there'll be five marks on a piece of English silver. No wonder people's eyes roll back in their heads. Yeah, it's overwhelming. Um, I am really surprised. I did not realize that there was that much method to the badness. Um, I've gotten kind of used to when things are complicated that it's just the foibles of history cascading down. But if it's quite decodable, it sounds like. Well, it is decodable, but you have to use the decoder ring. <laughs> I gotta drink more Ovaltine. <laughs> That's right. 
So there are resources, you know, sources include. Um, <laughs> there are plenty of resources to work all that out. I think the reason it's important to learn the English silver marking system is that if you get that kind of under your belt, then when you find a piece of Russian silver, a piece of Japanese or Chinese silver, a piece of Judaica from diasporic Jewish silversmiths, all silver is somehow identified. And so if you start understanding how the marks work, you can then go to the resources necessary to look up your item. Wow, that's because I remember my, my silver journey got muddled up. I had a French silver piece that I was trying to identify using English information. And that was kind of what set me on the path of like, I don't understand any of this. Right. <laughs> Right. So the French had their own method. It involved, in the early days, a little rooster. But then the rooster fell away, and they picked up a different mark, which is the mark of Minerva. I don't know why. <laughs> but they also were regulating their own silver currency for obvious reasons. And then, of course, there's the colonies and the American system. And it's really hard because there's oftentimes no marks on American silver because they never adopted this arcane system of marking. It's just chaos over here. Well, it was a little chaotic, except that there wasn't much of it. You know, there were a few silversmiths, they were melting down silver that, you know, the point of a colony is to pull out raw materials and then sell finished goods back, right? And that was the whole tea party problem. So the silver that was coming into the colonies would be melted down and then refashioned into other articles, you know, like spoons and things. And that's why there's not a whole lot of need for that because the population was low and there wasn't a lot of wealthy people. This was always a luxury good, right? I will say I am enchanted at all of this very meaningful artisanal, this marking and like commodifying, going into a piece, an item that if you handed it to me today and didn't explicitly tell me it was sterling I would use to eat pudding yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I think you should eat pudding with silver sterling spoons myself <laughs> the best way to take care of your silver is to use it oh but that's maybe another conversation I do want to say though that I have a, a really narrative kind of approach as a collector and researcher because what's really intriguing about silver is the marks are understandable and those that are obscure introduce a kind of detective project that can be very rewarding and interesting. But also there's in the study of silver, irrespective of the marks, there's the human story in every kind of category. I mean, there's obviously design. Some people collect silver not for the marks or for its age, but how it looks. Design follows all sorts of aesthetic movements and trends from ancient times right up to today. There's also sort of the economic story, if you're interested in that, about the monetary system and sterling standard. If you're an artist yourself or a craftsperson, how do you make this stuff? Um, you can learn how to make silver. There's technology where the steam engine really revolutionized what silver articles people could own. In the Industrial Revolution period of the mid-1800s, that made electroplated silver articles indistinguishable from sterling, and people of more modest means could afford it. So there's a kind of economic and social stratification story to learn. 
And silver is a luxury good, but there's a huge cost in human beings in acquiring it. You know, for most of English silver history, it was coming from exploitative colonial interests in Central and South America. And there's a human cost to that exploitation of colonial empire. It was the Spanish who controlled that, but the English in the 18th century had an insatiable appetite for silver. And it's sort of like the story of mahogany, where silver won't be extinct like mahogany, but human beings suffered greatly to feed the appetite of English silver. So whether it's social history, social justice history, aesthetic or design history, silver has it all. And it's also beautiful and durable. I think that even going beyond what the marks mean, uh, there's a lot to learn in any piece of old silver that you happen to pick up. Oh, that's a beautiful way to see it. Yeah, it's an absolutely fascinating perspective on the human history of silver. And it's not always a pretty human history. I mean, it's those of us who collect sterling silver, especially 18th century and sterling silver. I have to every day recognize the human cost in mining the raw material to get that silver. And it's not always as glittering and beautiful as your candlesticks. So to collect it, you really need to understand what it is in context. And that's what the marks help us to do. Absolutely. It's interesting because it feels like in recent times, people have become really aware of the human cost of a lot of things like diamonds. Oh, yeah. Obviously, like the really common talking point. I think because it's not, you know, sterling isn't really like our standard anymore. It does kind of fall underneath people's understanding that like, it's just as brutal a history. Right. A lot of English silver had to be captured from Spanish ships that were bringing it back from Mexico and South America and Central America. And so you would capture a ship full of silver and mahogany, and then it would become English booty. The trade of raw silver is another whole historical story to tell about English empire and English political history. Yeah, There's a lot of nautical history tied up in there. Well, I guess so. You know, I live in the middle of the continent. I rarely see a boat. Lake Michigan has boats, but no whales or anything. Yet. <laughs> so all of that shipping back and forth, you know, there was a lot of precious metal flowing out of Mexico and Central America. And, you know, Argentina, actually, there wasn't much argent coming out of Argentina, but Peru was full of uh, silver production and refining. And, but we're kind of getting a little off the topic. <laughs> As is our way. But regarding American silver... Until the middle of the 1800s, say about 1850, there was no source of North American raw material. And so they were melting foreign coinage. And that's why American silver before the Civil War is almost always coin silver. It refers to the having melted down foreign coinage. So the coin silver is not up to sterling standard. It's slightly less. So American silver before the Civil War is about 89 or 90% pure silver and then 10% alloyed other metals. And that's why it's called coin. And you'll see it marked coin. It might just have the letter C on it, something like that. But if it doesn't say sterling, it's not. 
Sterling. It is a little funny to me how much of like pre-Civil War American history is just like, okay, we're gonna take together the scraps of what everyone else has got and make our own thing out of it. (laughs) That's really true in the case of metalwork. And of course, the Gorham Company was founded in that sort of era, 1830s. I think it's really old company there in Providence. And so they were working with coin silver for the early part of their history. And after the Civil War, sterling became more common among American products because in 1850s, the Comstock load in Nevada started producing North American silver out of those mines. And so now there was a North American source of raw silver and American silversmiths and companies that began after the Civil War had a supply for sterling. Then American pieces, they don't have all these marks that identify date. The maker is usually spelled out, but then there's also retailers who sold it. They might put their name on it. So if you look at a piece of American silver from the 19th century, you'll see maybe two names. One would be the silversmith and the other would be the merchant who sold it and the word sterling. But there wouldn't be a special mark to indicate sterling. If it says sterling, it is. If it says coin, it's 90%. And if it says nothing at all, you don't know. And it's very hard to date American silver because there's no system of assay office. And that means that the way to date American silver is by looking at the piece as a whole. You know, is this stylistically consistent with the late Victorians? Is this stylistically consistent with the Art Nouveau? Is this stylistically consistent with Art Deco or arts and crafts movement in America? So you have to talk about aesthetics and technology in the case of American silver because they were hand-hammering spoons up to the Civil War period. And those will be very plain. Have you seen fiddle pattern spoons? They have this little bulge and they're called fiddle pattern. I don't know how to describe it. It starts out thin in the stem and then expands to a kind of paddle. So it's called fiddle, but it might look more like a paddle. Those were handmade spoons before the Civil War. After the Civil War, steam power and other mechanized production methods were more available, and you could start getting patterns on spoons. They'd die stamp them, so they would slam down a die and form a pattern, and that's the beginning of patterned flatware. And so that would be if you find a spoon that has an identifiable pattern on it, it's almost certainly going to be after the Civil War in date. So, you know, American silver is harder for especially beginners because you lack all this good information that the English were so obsessive about, which is why I think starting with English silver of the height of its popularity really gives you a good introduction to how to read silver. And you do have to read silver, not only what's marked on it, but also what it tells you in its design and its construction and stuff like that. That's like flipping my whole like point of view on its head because I, growing up in the New England area that I'm in, surrounded by Gorham and like Pearpoint silver, I had always considered it easier just because that is how I learned to identify silver because like you said, there aren't a lot of reliable markings. 
So a lot of it just came down to like, you know, I kind of have a feeling about this design. I kind of might know that this pattern is between these ages, which seems very backwards now <laughs> the way when you put it that way. Because that's just the method that I'm used to with all this American silver around. But there's more methodology to the English silver. Absolutely. But Gorham plays a really dirty trick on people. Because the Gorham silver marks are a lion, an anchor, and a gothic G, right? Very dirty trick. <laughs> That's a terrible dirty trick because they are using symbols and emblems that are English in origin. Oh, that's a diabolical. Oh, diabolical <laughs> indeed. I had a client who said that they thought they knew what they were looking at and they were very proud of themselves. I work with this client on a recurring basis at a museum, actually. And he said, I think it's English from Birmingham. And I looked at it and it took me literally a second to see that he had been fooled by the anchor oh. and the lion because the assay office in Birmingham uses the symbol of an anchor. And so does Gorham. <laughs> But it depends on the order of presentation. Isn't that sinister? So many people confuse Gorham, which is a very high-end, excellent manufacturer. It's very desirable. But they mistake Gorham silver for English silver. And it's not. And it's better if it were Gorham. You know, and it matters to dealers in particular. In the case of this museum, we'll work that out because all we have to do is write up the description of it. But if I'm a dealer and I pick up a Gorham spoon and I think I've got a piece of Birmingham, England silver, the price I can offer that at is quite different. <laughs> Speaking as an appraiser now, step one, you have to identify what the thing is. And if you misidentify it, then you're going to price it wrong. You're not going to understand what its value is. So that's why I think a conversation like today, if you're going to deal in this either as a buyer or as a seller, if you misidentify the object, then you're going to either leave money on the table or you're going to overpay for something. So it does have practical implications to people who are not necessarily silver connoisseurs or silver collectors. You know, I, I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> I think my first episode was Snow Babies. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> you had me at Snow Babies. But in the Facebook group, people often talk about, you know, buying and selling things that they just love and, and that they want to resell. And so this is kind of a public service announcement that it's worth your time to do a little investigation into the marks on your silver so that you know what it is you've got. And once you know that, then you can price it appropriately or buy it at an appropriate price. So I promise to use my power only for good. <laughs> And we thank you for that, because you could pull a real Gorham if you wanted to. I could. I could. <laughs> I could. So it seems to me that the English and maybe even more broadly, the European sterling markings aren't as scary as I used to think they were. Oh, absolutely not, because you have at your fingertips all the information you need to decipher it. Perhaps the hardest part is reading some of these teeny tiny little marks. <laughs> And especially if a butler has rubbed it too much in the past. So some of them are hard to read. You'll need a loop or some other magnification to look at them. 
But once you can identify what the mark is, then you simply use a resource. And there's some really good ones online. There's also books, you know, like if you're my age and you like having a hard copy book. <laughs> so there's resources. The only way to decipher it is by using the resources. And there's some really good ones. If I might be a little autobiographical, how did you, how did your interest turn to silver? Oh, well, some years ago, I've always been a, kind of a researcher in general. That's my training. I was a literary researcher. So I read text and analyze text. And that's my skill set. But material culture has always been interesting to me because I read objects like text, you know. And so I've just applied my training and professional characteristics to this, my personal interests in material culture. So I read an article. I live out in northern Illinois in a little small town, and the local newspaper runs a syndicated column by the Covells. And it still does. Uh, it's been in the newspaper once a week for many years. And I was reading the Covell column, and Terry Covell, I think, is the mother of that operation now. She's a very elderly lady. She said the first piece of silver that she ever bought, or maybe the first piece of antique she ever bought, was a silver sugar tongs made by Hester Bateman. And I read that and I thought, Hester is a funny name for a guy. <laughs> um, and I pursued this and discovered that Hester Bateman was an 18th century silversmith. And not only that, but she was one of the most dynamic entrepreneurs in all of Georgian England. In London, she had her shop and she actually had, to my understanding, the first commercial steam engine oh. for this kind of production. She was a mover and a shaker. Oh, damn. And the more I learned about Hester Bateman, it was like, holy cow. So I found a book that was a catalog of an exhibit in Washington, D.C., the Museum of Women in the Arts, I believe. And they had a whole exhibit in the 1980s about women silversmiths. Holy cow. There's like 130 documented women silversmiths. And I thought, I have to know more about this. And then as I learned that social history, because it was so intriguing and not what I expected of Georgian England, I came to really appreciate just the beauty of silver and all these other aspects of what silver is as an artifact of material culture. What does it say about the values of the society that desired it? What does it say about its production methods and the way in which people in the Industrial Revolution period were caught up in the horror of that system, and then followed by the William Morris crowd trying to get back to this medieval guild fantasy of production in arts and crafts movement. And my head exploded <laughs> because I found in silver just the richest source of intellectual playground. And it's not only that, but I could own it. <laughs> so, wow. I don't have to just learn about it. I can eat off it. <laughs> and so I have spoons and salt cellars and beer jugs and sugar tongs and toddy ladles and wine bottle tickets, wine labels. So, and every piece says something about its manufacture and its 
position in the society as a luxury good, about the design that was trending at that period and how trends change and fashions change. And so, yes, my head exploded. And that's my area of expertise as an appraiser, but I also do, you know, general antiques research and personal property. Man, the Covells have definitely done their work to get people interested in antiques and antiquities. Yeah, they're really an interesting case. They started writing about antiques really as novices. They didn't know a thing about it. They were publishers. It's sort of like the Martha Stewart thing. Martha Stewart is really a publisher. And yet she's developed into this, I don't know what you call her, whatever you want to call her. <laughs> entrepreneur? <laughs> popularizer. <laughs> call her entrepreneur, you know. but she's a popularizer. Well, the Covells uh, really applied their energies as publishers to the study. And now they're a huge industry in antiques and collectibles. And they're trustworthy. And now their daughter, I think the husband of that couple died. And Terry Covell, the surviving wife, she's really the mastermind and has been probably all along. And now their daughter. So it continues. And it's a very good entry into the antiques and collectibles. But then it kind of you reach a point where it's not helpful anymore. And then you'll know what is my area of interest and how do I pursue more in-depth understanding of this object, whether it's, you know, Americana or primitives or whatever it is. You know. So I'm all in favor of the Cobells and I admire their enterprising nature. Oh, very much. I feel like we could have a whole second episode just about women silversmiths and their work. And I would love to. Oh, well, as you can tell, I will talk about this at the drop of a hat. <laughs> you got to be careful what you ask because um, I really can talk a long time about it. But yes, I'd be happy to talk more specifically about women silversmiths and the history of silver, which goes back to medieval England. And then, of course, continues today in some really exciting art silversmiths of uh, the 21st century producing beautiful silver objects. Oh, heck yeah. Not for domestic use. You know, we're not talking about boons and salt cellars anymore, but beautiful art pieces. So there's a lot going on, women in silversmiths. And maybe this is a bold assumption, but I assume, I like to get this in anytime I talk about silver, boo to the silver melters. You know... <laughs> Bringing out your anti-scrapper agenda again, D. <laughs> I'm busting it out. Yeah, I'm not particularly hard line on this matter. I see a lot of silver as an appraiser. People often turn to me and say, you know, I inherited this from my great aunt so-and-so or my mom and we never use it. And it, what do I do with it? And I'd feel guilty if I, you know, blah, blah, blah. Silver has always been an infinitely malleable raw material. As evidenced by coin silver. Yes. But in the 1980s, toward the end, like 88, 89, I don't remember exact date, there was a pretty infamous play by the Hunt brothers in Texas. These were oil-rich young men. They owned football teams and stuff like that. The Hunt brothers cornered the market on silver in speculating and just like a Beanie Baby. Oh, no. <laughs> so the Beanie Baby story and the silver story come together in the 1980s when the Hunt brothers cornered the market of silver and ran the price up to over $100 per troy ounce. Well, ultimately, they got in trouble and 
the you know this was a trust problem and it came back down in about a year right now the spot price to give you a context the spot price of silver today is about $23 per troy ounce so it was over $100 per troy ounce and during that year in the late 1980s massive amounts of silver went pouring into the melting pot because you could sell it to the refiners and cash it out for huge paydays. Now there's not that much incentive to melt your silver. If it's historically significant, if it's of particularly high quality, like Tiffany or Gorham or Perk, you know, some of these other really important silver makers, you don't want to melt those down. If they're artistically interesting or beautiful, they don't melt those down. But if it's run-of-the-mill, even sterling can be ordinary. Sometimes it's okay to melt sterling silver because it will be made into something else. Sterling silver is never lost. It's, the reason it's so precious next to gold is that it never goes away. I mean, it doesn't, it's incorruptible. It's incorruptible. You can melt it and refashion it indefinitely. And throughout the history of silver in domestic use, it has been done so where a family in the 1700s would have, you know, several items of silver and it looked old fashioned. So the daughter of the family says, you know, I'm getting married. I want more up to date silver. So she would take her old silver and melt it down and fashion new silver. In times of war, the crown of England would call in the silver and you had to melt down the silver to support the war effort. So over the history of silver, there's always been melting and refashioning, melting and refashioning. So I have, I'm not fetishistic. <laughs> oh, there's a word. I don't mean to imply, D, that you have a silver fetish. I will. Carolyn doesn't have to, but I will. Okay. Uh, I, <laughs> I've always worn that I am something of an absolutist, but I do agree. I, I think yours is a much more nuanced take. And it helps people because they want permission to sell their ordinary sterling. And of course, there's silver plated ware that has no melting value. So if it's silver plated, there's nothing to do but send it to the resale shop or something because you can't recover the silver on a piece of silver plate. So, but if it's sterling, it depends on whether it's worth melting or not. So use your best judgment. Okay, I like that. Or use someone else's better judgment. Well, I would say consult an appraiser. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> right. Consult an expert's judgment and trust that. Right, right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us, Carolyn. We've learned a whole bunch today, and I'm very excited to learn still more in the future. I hope so. And if were there any questions that were left unaddressed or on the table? We're a very quick one. Um, do you have any like resources that you would suggest that a beginner go to if they want to start dipping their toes in? Well, sure. Resources include, <laughs> let me see. It kind of depends on what you need to do. For instance, there are two really good resources specifically for identifying maker's marks and such like. I use these almost every day. The first one is a website called 925-1000.com. 
So those are numerals, 925-1000.com. 925 represents the sterling standard because 92.5% is 925 parts per thousand. So that's how you know that's for sterling. That's a really good resource for all sorts of uh, hallmarks and understanding maker's marks. I also recommend a website that's a little frenetic to use, but it's exhaustive and exhausting. (laughs) It's silvercollection.it. That's an Italian website. It's run by a really knowledgeable guy named Giorgio, and it's massive. And it's confusingly created. So you have to, you know, you don't want to do this on 20 minutes on the train. You're going to need to sit down on a weekend and look into it. Those two resources are really my everyday go-to for obscure or unknown marks. I also, for flatware, if you run across, you know, knives and forks and spoons and you're interested in either buying it, you want to know more about the pattern. My go-to source for patterns is a retail site called Antique Cupboard, antiquecupboard.com. And this is a retail site in Wisconsin, I believe. And they're really good on most manufacturers and patterns. So I think if you have those three in your online toolbox, you can get your head around what it is you're looking at. And so that's what I would recommend for resources. There's lots of other silver hallmark identifiers online, but those are the three I recommend. Fantastic. Awesome. Yeah, those are great jumping off points. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Carolyn, and looking forward to any future episodes you will consider appearing on. Well, thank you both so much. I've wanted to talk to you for a long time because I'm kind of like a big fan. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, I get, a, I get a little starstruck. I was afraid I was going to be nervous talking to you, but you're very reassuring. Aww. I'm not going to lie. I was pretty starstruck the other because I, like, uh, as someone who's just kind of self-taught by being in the antique trenches it's like anytime I meet someone who is like really on top of what they know it's really exciting for me and honestly I have learned a lot just from this conversation yes same oh great well thank you all so much and uh, I hope that you can cut and paste this together into a listenable show (laughs) absolutely you've made my job very easy If you would like to suggest episode topics or just say hello, you can email us directly at antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com. You can post in our Facebook group, Antiques Freaks Friends, or you can tag us on Tumblr, antiquesfreaks.tumblr.com. If you would like to listen to deleted scenes or listen to our special bonus episode presentation of the Victorian Penny Dreadful Varian the Vampire, you can hit up our Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks. Special shout out to our patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. And thank you in particular for listening. Au revoir!